Well, as I mentioned tonight, we're going to cover the book of 2 Samuel, the whole book. That's what we're doing in these studies. And 2 Samuel kind of reads like a tragic documentary of a popular figure. I don't know why, but for some reason, Elvis came to my mind. I mean, first you learn about his early life, his, his rise to fame. He's talented, catches a break. He skyrockets into popularity. And then you learn about his glory years, the fame, the fortune, the success. Everything seems to be going right in his career. He's known as the king of rock or just the king. Then you learn of his later years and how that power and that money went to his head. And his character changed. He made poor decisions. His career declined. And then his life ended in tragedy. And to a degree, that's kind of what you get in Second Samuel surrounding another king, an actual real king, King David. We watched the very early years of David in First Samuel. He's anointed king by the prophet Samuel, chosen by God. But it's not until Second Samuel that David actually becomes king. And starting off, we see his glory years. He does what is right. He rules over God's people with justice and righteousness. Success follows him everywhere. But then in his middle years, things take a turn. Power goes to his head. He makes poor choices and he reaps the tragic consequences. And so the latter half of 2 Samuel focuses on the failures of David. But 2 Samuel is no mere tragic documentary. That's because despite David's sin and shortcoming, he's still God's chosen king. And though he's a sinner, he is a man of true faith in God, and God will use him greatly to bring forth his plans and a promise of, of a greater son of David, one who will rule over God's people perfectly forever. God's grace and promise are on display here, working through imperfect vessels. It's all God has to choose from until Christ. But this is why we see God doing all this. Second Samuel, we're, we're learning how God is moving forward his grand plan to redeem mankind, which has been so marred by sin. So much so that even the great King David is not immune. He too is, is very, very fallen, we learn in Second Samuel. But God's grace and promise will conspire to provide that the perfect mediator king the people need, one who will even redeem them. And we know that's the hope we have in Christ, the greater son of David, but we learn about the foundations of that hope and those promises of all places here in Second Samuel, uh, almost nowhere else in the Old Testament, especially when it comes to well, the, the promises to and through David. I mean, Second Samuel, it's where you find them. So we're carrying on in this Getting to Know the Old Testament series. Originally, I thought about doing First and Second Samuel together. It's one study. And then originally, there were one book. It's just known as Samuel. And they share the same themes, purposes, and setting. But you know, getting into the study, they really are large, meaty, rich theological narratives of the Old Testament. I mean, 1 Samuel has 31 chapters. 2 Samuel has 24 chapters put together. 55, that's a solid book to try and do in one evening. So we decided to split it up. That being said, we're here tonight to finish up with 2 Samuel. So let's, let's carry on with that. Normally start with basic background. Don't really need to because it's the same as 1 Samuel. So you can reference that. Just by way of brief reminder with some of the setting. This picks up right with the death of Saul. He died at the end of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel took us through the, the time of transition from the judges to the kings in Israel's history. 
Samuel himself was the last judge. The people wanted a king to rule over them, that they might be like the nations. They were effectively rejecting God as their king. So God first gave the people a king after their own desires. Saul. It's the type of guy people would choose to be king. And he proved he could lead the people in military battle. But God expected more from his king, that he wanted a king who could lead the people in in true worship and obedience. And and there Saul fell short. He was not that type of king. He was self-willed, pragmatic, not a man of faith. He fell short of leading the people in righteousness, and God rejected him from being king over Israel. In his place, God would anoint a different king, a, a man after his own heart, a man of true faith. That was David. God looked at his heart, saw David at being a man of true faith. And God would make David king to lead his people in worship and obedience. And the rest of 1 Samuel goes on to tell of the conflict between Saul and David. Saul, thereafter, continually trying to kill David. David fleeing, but refusing to exact vengeance or take matters into his own hands against Saul. He would not touch the Lord's anointed. Never could it be suggested that David stole the throne. He did everything in his power to just submit to Saul, honor him. In the end, though, Saul's downfall was entirely his own doing. At the very end, he was wounded in battle, and to avoid shame, he killed himself. And so Israel's experiment with a king, the very first king, ended in really a tragic failure. That's literally where 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul. And this is where 2 Samuel begins. Picks up right where it ended off, which makes sense. This was originally just one book. It's an artificial division. But 2 Samuel now takes us through the rest of David's life. David, and David alone, takes all the spotlight in 2 Samuel. We'll see how David is finally made king over all Israel. And how David will prove to be different than Saul. He is a man after God's own heart, but David is still not a perfect king. And his own failures will be put on on widescreen display here as well. But David's story does not end in complete tragedy like Saul's. That's because really another character is on display here. God and God's faithfulness to his promises to and through David will prove to be David's glory in the end. Well, let's talk purpose again, just quickly by way of a reminder. When it comes to the purpose of 2 Samuel, it's, it's going to be the same as 1 Samuel. We, we had a little basic purpose statement, you might say, for 1 and 2 Samuel. It was how Yahweh established his king over Israel and guaranteed his forever king and his covenant with David. You might think 1st and 2nd Samuel were written to tell us something about David. And you're, they were, you're partially right. But mostly Samuel was written to tell us something about God. And we're learning that God is the real king over his people. He always was, he always will be. He's the sovereign. And if only his people would listen to him and regard him and follow him as king, it it would go well with them. But they don't do that. They bear the consequences. Now, look, we also learn in 1st, 2nd Samuel, it's not wrong for God's people to be ruled by a, a human mediator king. 
In fact, it was actually always part of God's plans for his people to be ruled by a mediator king. It's just that that mediator had to be qualified. Those qualifications were distinct from the world. What qualifies a man to be king among the nations? Typically, it's just bloodline, lineage, heritage. You're born into it. Or power, wealth, military might. But none of that matters to God. He just wants a king who's qualified spiritually. Must be a man of true faith who will lead God's people in worship and obedience. And we learn that viscerally through the contrast of Saul and David. First, Second Samuel teaches us much of what it means to lead God's people what it means to be a man or woman of God. But God knew even the best uh, mediator king like David would still fall short of that perfect righteousness. Especially in 2 Samuel, we learn how David, who's the archetype of a righteous king, even he still falls short. As great as he is, even David can't lead God's people in, in a kingdom of everlasting righteousness. Another perfectly righteous king must rise up and lead God's people into blessing. And of course, God planned for that too. Second Samuel pops the hood on that plan and it doesn't get the lion's share of attention, but God's promise to bring about a righteous king through a son of David steals the lion's share of significance. That's something we'll turn our attention to later on. All right, well, let's move on to the structure outline. Really, now it's more of a synopsis here of 2 Samuel, bringing you up to speed real fast on what this book is all about. As always, the best way to do this is just for you to read 2 Samuel a bunch of times. Don't quite have the time for that right now, so the best we can do is I can give you a quick synopsis to take you through, walk you through the highlights of these chapters, because you need to know basically what's in the book as we reflect on it. I gave you last time a really simple four-part outline to Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel. You have 1st Samuel 1 through 15 is the monarchy established. 1st Samuel 16 through 31 is the rise of David. Now we're going to be into 2nd Samuel 1 through 10, the reign of David. And then 2nd Samuel 11 through 24, the demise of David. So we already covered last time the monarchy established and the rise of David. Now we'll see his reign and his demise. So let's do that. You can open to 2 Samuel if you haven't already, just to be ready. 2 Samuel chapter 1. First section here, chapters 1 through 10, the the reign of David. These are the glory years. Chapter 1 begins with David learning of Saul's death. Far from conspiring to kill Saul, when David hears of Saul's death, he he mourns. He's grieved. Even to the degree where this wicked Amalekite comes up to David claiming he's actually the one who killed Saul. He brings David Saul's crown. And David had him killed. Surely David had regard for the Lord's anointed. We're reminded here that David is, is innocent of Saul's death. The rest of the chapter records David's lament over Saul and Jonathan. Five times it uses the word mighty. Verse 19, how the mighty have fallen. And we're brought right back into the theme of 1 Samuel, which is going to carry over into 2nd. God's opposed to the proud. 
He will bring down the high, the lofty. Saul was mighty, but now he's fallen and his pride, his self-reliance are to blame. If only he had truly humbled himself and sought the Lord, he would have been lifted up. And now you move into chapters two through four. David here is finally, after all these years, he's finally made king, but not fully. He's not yet king over all Israel. He's only made king over Judah. He goes to Hebron. He's made king over the tribe of Judah, but Ish-bosheth, I'm going to eventually get that wrong. It's very hard to say fast, but Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, he's made king over the rest of Israel. Abner, he's the commander of Saul's army. He's the real power broker here. He's got all the power. He fears David's reprisal after Saul is dead. So he doesn't want to give David the kingdom. He just takes Saul's son like, you're king now. He's really a puppet. Abner was in charge. Nonetheless, chapter 211 says, David was king in Hebron over Judah for seven years and six months. In the meantime, in those seven years, there was continued violence between Israel and Judah, but David would prevail. You see chapter 3, verse 1. It says there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew steadily stronger. The house of Saul grew weaker continually. In chapters 2 and 3 go on to record a lot of treachery and bloodshed between Israel and, and Judah, primarily through their military leaders, Abner for Israel, Joab for Judah. But chapter 3 shows David himself was innocent. He was not conniving. He was not involved in this treachery. He was not trying to steal back the throne over Ish-bosheth. Look at, uh, go into chapter 4. And after Abner dies, Israel loses confidence in Ish-bosheth. And so two men kill him and they bring his head to David. They think they're doing him a favor. Like, here's the guy who's getting in the way of you being king over all Israel. We just killed him. Now you can be king. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. David responds to them. He answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, sons of Ramon the Berthite. He said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. When one told me, saying, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed. Shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Like, basically, I don't think so. These were two wicked men who thought they could garner favor with David by killing the king. But Ish-bosheth was no enemy of David. He was Saul's son. David still had regard for the bloodline of Saul. But you see the theme here. David is not conniving to be king over all Israel. It is true. Ish-bosheth was in the way of David finally taking all power for himself, king over all Israel. But for seven years and six months, David did nothing about it himself. He was just waiting on the Lord for seven years. Wicked men made this happen, not David. This is highlighting David's patient trust in Yahweh and his zeal for justice. These were wicked men who murdered a righteous man. Ish-bosheth had not done anything wrong per se. But David knew if he was really going to be king, it would be God's hand to bring it about. He was not going to resort to evil to, to bring this 
to pass, to be king. Nevertheless, though, through these events, David now is going to be made king over all Israel. That's chapter 5. We learn how he captures Jerusalem. He makes it his new capital city because Hebron was too far south. So Jerusalem becomes now the city of David, the capital. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. A little summary. It says, David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. Verse 12 says, And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. That he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David just sat back and recognized this was all happening by God's hand. He has now been made king over all Israel. But it's not for his sake. It's not for his power, for his enjoyment. It's for the sake of the people. He's been put there by God to lead the people in justice and righteousness. And he had better now use all of his power to do just that. And at first, that's what David does. Chapter 5, verse 25 summarizes. It basically says, David did so just as the Lord had commanded him. That's a noteworthy contrast to Saul, who fell short of doing all that the Lord commanded him. What's interesting here is, you know, all the political details of David becoming king are essentially skimmed over. Chapter 5 really matters are are really the the theological details of David becoming king. And that's chapter 6 and 7, which focus on the ark. And after years of neglect by Saul, David resolves to bring the Ark of the Covenant back in its proper place of prominence among the people. It had been neglected. Even after it was recaptured from the Philistines, Saul ignored the Ark basically 20 years. But David wants to to bring it back to its rightful place and later even build a temple for it. And so he brings the Ark back to Jerusalem. But we learn a story of a man named Uzzah, or Uzzah, I don't really know how to pronounce it properly, but we'll just call him Uzzah. And on the way, as it's being transported back to Jerusalem, it's on a cart. The ark is going to fall off. It's going to fall to the ground. So Uzzah reaches out his hand to just stabilize it, keep it from falling to the ground. And as a result, God kills him. He strikes him dead on the spot. That seems like super harsh, extreme, And that's the point. It's supposed to. This is highlighting a clear signal that that this God is holy. Who do you think you're dealing with? Who who are you? What ark are you bringing into Jerusalem? This God in your midst is not to be taken lightly or trifled with. He's a holy God. And as my seminary professor uh, professor once said, as his mistake was thinking that his hand was cleaner than the dirt of the ground. But to God, it's, it's not. All Israel had better walk carefully before this God who's now in their midst. He has the power to bless them, but also to lay them low if if they do not regard, carefully regard his holiness. You know, and although the ark is just a symbol of God's presence with his people, David is coming to learn that he wants the people to know God deserves a central place in Israel. He, he should be at the forefront. This is such a huge contrast with Saul, one who neglects the ark. And all it does represent God's presence with his people. What does that say about Saul? He, he was not really concerned with 
the true worship of God, the central worship of God. But David, it's one of his first acts of business now. Let's get the ark back in and put it in its proper place of prominence. Let's lead this whole people to worship Yahweh. That's David. He is a true worshiper, and he, at least at first, comes to regard the holiness of God. He wants Yahweh to be honored so much that he intends now to build a a grand temple for God and the ark. That's chapter 7. This is, this is a big chapter where God himself interrupts David and speaks to him. And he tells David that instead of David building God a house, God is going to build David a house, a lineage, a kingdom. And God always outgives those who give to him. And God goes on to make a covenant with David to promise him many great things. That's a, it's Probably the most significant chapter in the whole book, so much so we're going to save it for the end. We're going to come back with a special focus on the Davidic covenant that God establishes in chapter 7. Well, from here, chapters 8 through 10 record some victories and triumphs of David. God helps him wherever he goes. He really is leading the people in righteousness. Look at chapter 8, verse 15, kind of a summary statement. Again, it says, so David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. He he was doing it. He was actually being the righteous king. But that's going to change. We come to the the final section of 1 and 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11 through 24, the demise of David. Why don't you turn to chapter 11 and look at verse 1. Clearly, this is a transition in 2 Samuel. It says, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. This is the time when kings go out to battle, but David is not going out to battle. He's staying back home. What's going on? He's Lounging on the couch. Literally, we find that in verse 2. He's not acting as king. It says, When evening came, David arose from his bed or couch and walked around on the roof, the king's house. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And this introduces the David and Bathsheba incident where David was overcome with lust, took Bathsheba for himself. Though she was married, she became pregnant And he conspired to have her husband Uriah killed to cover it up and take her. Meanwhile, Uriah is portrayed as a completely righteous man. And the text takes pains to always call him Uriah the Hittite. He's never just called Uriah. He's always called Uriah the Hittite. He's a Gentile. Even then it shows God would regard the Gentile who entered his people came to his presence as long as he worshiped Yahweh alone. He was accepted among the mighty men of David. As a, and he was a true worshiper. Here is a Gentile proving now more righteous than King David in his laps. But David had him killed that he could steal his wife without shame. David committed a great evil. The chapter ends. David, his plan has succeeded. He thought he got away with it. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is his. But it says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. God sees. He's not hiding it from from God. 
You know, a big part of sin is now David, the king. Now he's the one using his power to take advantage of the weak, to harm the weak, to harm his people. Again, that's the theme of Samuel, God opposed to the proud, the lofty, the, the arrogant who use their power to, to hurt others, take advantage of others. And now that's David. He's become the oppressor of the weak, not the defender like the king should be. And there's going to be consequences for that. In chapter 12, God sends Nathan the prophet to rebuke David. He convicts him of how he used his power to hurt the weak. He lost compassion. He did evil. Now, David is eventually humbled, and he does repent. He confesses his sin. He was deceived and temporarily hardened by sin, but God's mercy breaks through. David genuinely repents, and God forgives him. Chapter 12, verse 13, God says to him, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. He was forgiven. God's mercy is greater. Even than those sins, he was forgiven. But there would still be some earthly consequences for his sin. For one, verse 14, it says, However, because by this deed you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. I mean, David holds out hope for God's mercy, but indeed the child born from this unholy union would die. What's interesting is that after this, David and Bathsheba do have another son, Solomon. Verse 24 says the Lord loved him. Solomon, as you know, was the next king in line. He was part of the Messiah's lineage. It's amazing to see how even God will take our worst and lowest moments and still sometimes use them to bring about his greater plan. But there are more consequences, though, you need to know for the narrative of 2 Samuel. Look back at verse 10 of 2 Samuel 12. Before, he said, as part of the consequences, it says, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll raise up evil against you from your own household. I'll even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. And really, the rest of Second Samuel are these consequences being played out? That, that's what you get in the rest of Second Samuel to teach a, a very poignant lesson. Chapters 13 through 19, right away, get into Absalom's rebellion. And bloodshed and sin certainly would plague David's household. You know, first you have David's oldest son, Amnon. He takes the, the sister of his brother, so his stepsister, I guess, And he takes her, Tamar, by force. Another huge evil and and sin. David hears about it. He's angry, but he does nothing about it. He did not bring about justice. Amnon was his oldest son, his beloved son. He went light on him, perhaps because what Amnon did was not terribly different from what David did with Bathsheba. But it's another example of the powerful using their strength to take advantage of the weak, and, and justice was not done. But as a result of this, Tamar's brother, Absalom, he's going to take matters into his own hands. He's also a son of David, and he kills Amnon, his his brother or half-brother. David's enraged, so Absalom flees. He's in exile for three years. He finally comes back to Jerusalem, but for another two years, he's not allowed to see the king's face. 
The punishment here is way more excessive than for Amnon. David's playing favorites. He's not this impartial arbiter. As you can imagine, Absalom becomes embittered against David. He conspires against him. And over years, we get the picture, this is over years, but he's stealing away the hearts of the people as if in a firewarn charge, I would lead you in true justice. And after years of scheming, the moment is right and Absalom seizes power and he succeeds. David is forced to flee. It's back like when he, Saul was chasing him. He's, he's king, but now he's again forced into the wilderness to flee, this time from his own son who's out to kill him. But David understands these events have come from the Lord. In chapter 15, 20, 25, 26, we won't read them for time, but he knows this is God's hand. This is part of the consequences of his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. In short, though, Absalom is, is thwarted by the Lord. He doesn't prosper. A little civil war ensues, and those loyal to David fight those loyal to Absalom. Absalom himself is killed by Joab. David returns to power. When he does so, he takes no retribution. He doesn't kill those who are part of this rebellion. He basically lets them go. He knows this was just God's discipline on him. Part of that curse he received for his sin with Bathsheba. He tries to deal justly with people, even though a big mess has been made. And, and it has, a big mess had been made. Sin is messy. Seven chapters are devoted to this episode. It's way more than most other things. God's opposed to the proud. He does not take evil doing lightly. Thankfully, he's a merciful God who forgives. David was spared death and eternal death, both of which he deserved for his crimes. But God's strong hand of discipline still came down on him. At the very least, I think it should lead us to think twice before we, we sin high-handedly against this God. It's not over though. Chapter 20 details more consequences. You have Sheba's revolt. He's a Benjaminite. He tries to take power. There's another little mini civil war. He's eventually put down, but just more trouble, more bloodshed. David's suit of shining armor is kind of wearing off. What's really interesting though is how 2 Samuel ends. Go to chapter 24, the final chapter. It ends with David taking a census of the people. You think, okay, kind of random, doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But just the mere fact that David numbered the people brought the anger of the Lord, and so he sent a pestilence on the land. And David himself realized he had sinned and leaves us wondering, like, wait a second, like, that's not explicitly forbidden, isn't it? Like, you can't take a census. There's no command. Like, what's the deal? Why is God so angry? Why is this the last chapter? What, what's the significance of this? Well, as you study and realize, David, why was he taking the census? He was doing so to determine his military might. He was specifically numbering the fighting men of Israel because he had come at this point to place his confidence not in the Lord's strength and might to fight his battles, but his own. He had fallen into that trap of of Saul, that self-reliance. His own army will deliver him. All he had to do was just trust Yahweh to fight his battles and to lead the people. That's all the Lord wanted from the king. He would do it. 
but this is just David waning in his later years. We just think back to, to young, young David. He's slaying Goliath with a rock. All he had to do is just trust this God. He'd deliver him in all of his battles, but he, in his, in his later years, was, was slowing down. David was sinning by not trusting the Lord. And as a result, the Lord judged the people on David's account. And so it goes with mediatorial rule. The king is God's mediator, representative, go-between over the people. And as the king serves the Lord earnestly, the people will be blessed. But as the king himself goes astray, the people will be cursed. That's just the nature of mediatorial rule. And so God sends a destroying angel to afflict Israel. If you didn't know that, just read chapter 24 again more closely if you never picked up on that. He sends the destroying angel to destroy Israel. 70,000 people fall. And the angel comes right up to Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem. But that's when God finally tells him to stop. Look at 24 verse 16. It says, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it is enough, now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord, this is the angel of the Lord, by the way, was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. David repents, he realizes he has sinned again. God relents, he stops the plague at the threshing floor of Aruna. David then buys that land and builds an altar to the Lord on that exact spot. Look at verse 25. And this is how the book ends. It's kind of an interesting ending. Like, if you're an author, this is like the last words. Verse 25. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. And that's it. It really, again, it's an interesting way to end this whole saga, ending 2 Samuel. Makes you wonder again, like, what gives? Why is this the ending? Why is this here? The key to interpretation is when you realize this exact spot, the threshing floor of Aruna, where the plague was held back when David offered sacrifice, will become the exact location of Solomon's temple and where the altar will stay, well, not forever, but while Solomon builds his temple. The author of 2 Samuel knew this, reflecting black and included this as, as a poignant conclusion. In putting this together, it's teaching us about sin, its consequences, and its solution. No people can stand before this God. We are all unholy and unrighteous. If, if this God were to come, actually come in our midst, we'd, we'd all just be consumed. But a righteous king, a mediator, can intercede for the people. And that's what we need. We need a mediator, one to go before us and stand before us in God. That mediator must also deal with our sin. Now, a sin offering must be brought before this holy God to satisfy his wrath. And look, the future temple would be the place where that would happen. That's where the presence of God would come and dwell among his people in peace to bless them, not to consume them, but only because their sins were held back by sacrifice. The sacrifices would be administered by the priest. It would be overseen by the king, the son of David. 
But again, if 2 Samuel shows us anything, though, put together, we really need a righteous king. We're lost by ourselves. Perhaps a king can save us and lead us to blessing. And he can. There is hope. We need a righteous king, a righteous mediator, a perfect mediator who can make perfect intercession and sacrifice. But David is not that king. And 2 Samuel ends making sure we know some of what we need, but David is not that king. He is a true man of faith. He's loved for the Lord. He is forgiven. He's used. But he falls short in many ways. And even as a result, the people themselves are almost destroyed. We need one to go before us and sacrifice for us that we might be accepted by this God. Second Samuel then leaves us with the hope that the son of David, Solomon, would be that perfect king. And Second Samuel ends exactly where First Kings picks up. And they likewise are meant to go together. And we, we learn about Solomon. But spoiler alert, Solomon's not the guy either. In fact, none of the sons of David are the guy. Until, of course, we get to a great son of David, Christ. And speaking of that, it's a good time to transition back to the special focus on the Davidic covenant. Let's go back now. That's a, so it's synopsis. You see what 2 Samuel is about, how it flows, some of the highlights. The reign of David, the demise of David. But I want you to now focus on the Davidic covenant. It really does stand out. So go back to chapter 7, 2 Samuel 7. Let's look more closely at this promise God made to and through David concerning a son. Let's read the text. You know, the word Lord came to Nathan the prophet for David. Let's pick it up in verse 5. It says, Go and say to David, my servant, or my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. that They may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom 
shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. This is the primary text for the Davidic covenant. The text itself never mentions the word covenant, but it's clear that's what God is doing here. Later on, chapter 23, verse 5, David himself reflects back in a psalm and says that God made an everlasting covenant with me. David knew what God was doing as well. A covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. This is a unilateral covenant, meaning it's one-sided. God is making all the promises and the fulfillment is all up to God. It's just one-sided. God gives, David receives. It's a unilateral, unconditional covenant. What is God promising? Many little details, but just four highlights. He's promising to make David's name great, which is fulfilled in David's lifetime and thereafter. He's promising David would have rest from his enemies, which is fulfilled in David's lifetime. But he also promises David would have a house, meaning lineage, that would last forever. That God is guaranteeing that the line of David will never be cut off. And for that, that David's throne would be established forever, tied in with this seed, this son, this descendant. This, this idea of throne speaks of ruling authority. He's guaranteeing that, that the right to rule over God's people would always belong to a Davidic king. This does not mean there would be an unbroken succession of Davidic kings. Disobedience could cause Israel to miss out on the blessings of the covenant. But God is saying he will always regard the Davidic throne and, and the ruler uh, of God will come from the Davidic throne. And since you all know, I mean, ultimately, this is going to point to Jesus. The angel Gabriel sure believed this was still in effect because as we get near to Christmas time, how did he announce the coming of Jesus? Luke one thirty two, he said, he will be great. He'll be called son of the most high. Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. You know, in the Davidic covenant, as with most prophecies and covenants, there's near-term and far-term promises going on here. Some of these promises were intended to be fulfilled in David's lifetime. You might see a down payment on the greater promises. But some intended uh, to reach into the far future. They intended to have a far fulfillment. We don't have a time for a grand study here, but uh, you should not be surprised to learn that they will uh, the, the far fulfillment of these promises find their fulfillment in Christ. Jesus is that greater son of David. And in him, that the greater promises of the house and the throne and the kingdom will find their fulfillment. Indeed, what really stands out in the Davidic covenant are, are the seed promises. The Davidic covenant really, it, you might say, is an elaboration or an expansion of God's first and foundational covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Go back to Genesis 12. God's promise to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham and his seed. God told Abraham way back in the day that he would have a son through Sarah and that great nations would emerge from him. Kings would come from him. And this, this special covenant community was later narrowed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Later, it was narrowed further when it comes to the right to rule 
through the tri- uh, tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10, the scepter will never depart from Judah. Here, we find God now narrowing these promises even further to one family of Judah, David. That they, this, this family, this lineage now will be the ones to lead God's people into an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. This will now be David's kingdom. And also emphasizes the eternal nature of the promise. See that in the last sentence, verse 15, 16. Your house, your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. You look at Psalm 89 and other reverberations of the Davidic covenant in the Old Testament. that They emphasize that the everlasting nature of these promises. It's really amazing to think about because there's no job security really when you're a king. A rival can come to power and if they do so, typically they totally eliminate your bloodline. Like they will kill you and all your sons, all your relatives. They will wipe out your bloodline to no more chance of that rising up and taking away power, right? The fact that that never happened. The rest of David's history or Israel's history, the Davidic line was never extinguished for all those years. It's actually quite phenomenal. Saul's bloodline ended pretty quick, but not David's. God's promise was behind that. And as with God's other unconditional promises and covenants like the Abrahamic, this covenant is not in question of being kept. It's one-sided, it's unilateral. God promises that he will bring it to pass. God attaches no conditions to this. He commits to fulfill it. Now, disobedience to God and his, his covenant with Israel and the people could negate any given generation enjoying the blessings of the covenant or participating in the blessings of the covenant. Here, any given son of David, if he did not seek the Lord and obey the Lord, he would not be blessed. He might be put out. But disobedience could never set the covenant aside. Nothing could stop its ultimate and final fulfillment. God would see to that by his promise. As you go on to read First and Second Kings, you're going to learn that, well, most of the future sons of David did not live up to the righteousness God demanded of the king. They, they fell short. They were wicked. And they did not enter God's blessing. But God's promises are never nullified. And indeed, he would make sure that a descendant of David would come and to lead God's people in everlasting righteousness. And well, we know that is, of course, Christ. And speaking of, that can take us into a little uh, application or, or thoughts of reflection as we finish up here. It's worthwhile, you could spend a lot of time on this, but just to reflect on some of the themes and lessons of Second Samuel, how we might respond and reply. And I mean, the first that came to my mind immediately, we're, we're thinking of the Davidic covenant was, you know, pay homage to the son of David, meaning Christ. Pay homage to the greater son. As you think about the Davidic covenant, I mean, we can't help read 2 Samuel from our post-cross perspective. Like, we know how the story goes. We, we know the failure of all the sons of David. None of them are going to cut it. But then we see the success of the one, Christ Jesus. Because he was the perfect God-man, the perfect mediator king over God's people. He's the only one who can finally lead us into rest and security, and a kingdom of everlasting righteousness. That's because 
He's the only one who can deal with our sin. Stand in the gap between this holy God and us and put away our sin by the sacrifice of himself as the king and priest. Psalm 2, for example, shows how the nations, they'll always reject God and his anointed. A theme in 1st, 2nd Samuel from beginning to end, bracketed by references to God's anointed one, chosen one, Messiah. The nations reject the anointed. And because of that, they'll be met by God's judgment in the end. But there's always a remnant preserved who receive the son and be part of that remnant. You do that by believing in Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, who has come. Pay homage to him. Psalm 2 ends, verse 11 says, worship the Lord with reverence, rejoice with trembling, do homage to the son. They not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The pay homage to the, the son of David. A second lesson I, I think we can't miss is just beware the consequences of sin. Beware the consequences of sin. Your, your sin will find you out one way or another. Look, it makes us extra thankful that Christ the Savior has come because we're all sinners. But in Christ, we come to see and take seriously the consequences of sin. And thankfully, Jesus spares us from the eternal consequences of sin, namely separation from God. But 2 Samuel truly reminds us that sin brings heartbreaking consequences in this life as well, in the life to come in addition. And even as Christians, we need to learn not to flirt with sin. Recognize God is not mocked. He's holy. And even as a believer, if you play with sin too much, you can expect God's heavy hand of discipline. And sometimes it's a heavy hand. He does it because he loves you as his child, but beware the consequences of sin. Saw this with Saul on one extreme who did not regard the Lord or obey his word. He put his desires and his will above the Lord's. God judged him for his disobedience. We also saw this with Uzzah, who who merely touched the ark of the Lord, which was forbidden, but he he failed to treat God as perfectly holy and bore the consequences. I mean, that that might offend your sense of fairness. So be it. But if so, that that simply means you you don't fully grasp and appreciate God's holiness. This otherworldly, truly, holiness. He just won't tolerate sin, and we... Must not as well. And then, of course, this lesson rings clearest from, from David and his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. I mean, several chapters are devoted to the vast, multi generational consequences to David's one great sin. Just think about that. Think about all the personal suffering that was spawned by his great sin against God. Those with greater knowledge, greater power are held to greater accountability and will find greater consequences. And so it goes for David, the king and what he did. I mean, looking back, do you think David would say that night with Bathsheba was worth it? Uh, No, sin is never worth it. Hope you've learned that lesson yourselves. Hope you learned that the easy way by seeing it in scriptures, not the hard way by living it out. But even still, you You can thank God because his grace is always greater than your sin. 
Like even if you've already done so much wrong in your life, even if you are right now living in the consequences of your sin, look, as long as you humble yourself and repent and turn and go to God, he will hear you and forgive you. Like he said to David, you you will not die. He will spare you from the, the eternal consequences. David himself was forgiven of his role in murder and adultery. You can be forgiven and reconciled in Christ. His grace is greater than our sin. Don't let that take, make you take advantage of his grace. Be thankful for it. But learn to just beware the consequences of sin. Treat God as, as holy. And then thirdly, I just felt compelled to add this. Don't, don't abuse your power. Don't abuse your power. This, it is a sub-theme, but I wanted to point out, because it just, in my study, it kept cropping up in First and Second Samuel. All the villains here, or you know, those portrayed in the negative light, they're always those who use their power to harm the weak. From Eli and his sons, to Saul, to eventually David, to his son Amnon. They all at one point used their power and their privilege that God gave them, not on behalf of the people, but to take advantage of the people and to harm those who were weaker. And that invites God's judgment. Why? Well, he's opposed to the proud, those who are lifted up and use their power to to harm the weak. He's opposed to that. He will lay you low if you do that. Instead, use power to help the weak care for the needy. What has the Lord given you? Power, money, you have influence in your position, authority, privilege. Praise God for his his goodness to you. Now, make sure you use that to to help those around you in in many forms. But help the less fortunate, just don't take advantage of them. There was a time when David did this. If you look closely, there, there's actually two summary statements of David's career in 2 Samuel. One, capping off his early years in chapter 8. One, caps off his later years in chapter 20. And actually, they're almost identical. But there's one little phrase in the first summary, after his good years, that's absent from the second summary. And the, it goes like this. It says, And David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. That was definitely true of him in his early years, but in his later years, it was not always true. He was waning in his later years, but as for you, don't wane. Be a man or or woman of God who who uses all God has given you is to be righteous and just in all your dealings with those around you. God looks to that, God rewards that, God blesses that. We can steal a word, not from 2 Samuel, but from Micah 6, 8. Where God says, he's told you, O O man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? That would be a fitting, you know, life verse for 2 Samuel. And for us as well. I mean, we learn that. To do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with the God who has saved us. Well, I pray you benefit from that study and take some of these lessons to heart. You know, these Old Testament studies truly are not just history for history's sake. They're meant to tell us about ultimately God, what he's done to save us from the mess we've all made because of our sin through the son of David. So let's thank him, praise him, give our lives to him. Let's close in word of prayer. 
Our good Father, we do thank and praise you for sending the, the Son to the world. And we are thankful we live on this side of the cross. We can rest in the assurance that the greater Son of David has come. And he's come as our sin bearer. Not just a king to rule, but also as, as a sacrifice. That the priest to go between us and you. You're, you're God who's you're too holy for us. We just cannot stand in your presence. But that's why we know we need Christ, the Son, the Savior, who can and who goes before us. He deals with our sin. He makes us righteous that we might be a part of your everlasting kingdom of righteousness. And we look forward to that. Uh, it's all by your grace. And so we will give you all the glory. We, we yield to our lives. Help us to use them to share the gospel, to represent the good news to the world, and to do justice and, and be righteous to those around us as we let the light shine. Convict us of these lessons and may we live them out as we study your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.